Hey bosses, this week's episode of Invest Like a Boss is presented by Our Crowd. Our Crowd gives accredited investors access to invest directly, easily, and early on some of the best performing IPOs. We'll tell you more about their latest offering in an innovative robotic surgery company during the break. But if you want to learn more now, you can head over to Our Crowd dot com slash boss that's o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d dot com slash boss welcome to the invest like a boss podcast i'm sam marks and i'm johnny fd we're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors business owners and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash Hey bosses, this is Johnny FD and welcome to episode 156 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Sam Marks. Welcome to the show. Hey Johnny, big 156. Going to dive into a topic that I love talking about and it's going to be something you love talking about too, Johnny, as soon as you pull the trigger and buy that (laughs) overseas real estate. You know what? I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. It sounded like uh, my $5,000 deposit got kicked back by the bank. So maybe that's a sign <laughs> not to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> what is overseas for you now? Because it's, it's, it's weird to say, right? It's like overseas for us is anything outside the USA, but the USA is actually where we spend the least amount the of our least. time. It's just, yeah. it's just where we have our citizenship still. Yeah, exactly. So this, guys, this is a follow-up to episode 151, which is about location arbitrage. A lot of people had questions about buying the actual property. Like, you know, we, now we know, you know, Sam, Johnny, we know the benefits, tax breaks, you know, low cost living, better weather, better quality of life, adventure, fun. But how do I buy the property? How do I invest? And Leaf and Kathleen just published a book. Actually, Leaf's been on this show before episode 46. We did an episode on flag theory, really popular episode. And Leaf, and Kathleen are all about investing overseas. You're going to find out in this episode, they own more than 30 pieces of real estate overseas, all types of rental properties from residential to agricultural. Really cool. This has been basically a scavenger hunt for their life. They go to different places they're interested in. They walk around, meet the people, buy property. It's super, super cool. They just published a book called Buying Real Estate Overseas for Cash Flow. And when I saw it, I needed to read it and dive into it. Uh, It's a very practical book. I think everyone will get a lot out of it. But what we're going to do on this episode is we're going to cover their eight steps, uh, which are basically just line by line. How do you buy property overseas? And I think everyone will get a lot out of it. Yeah. So let's jump into those eight steps and stay tuned for Sam and I and our commentary on the outro on what we think and what we're going to do. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or even being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd has closed investments on over 200 companies, of which dozens of those have made exits. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Memic. 
Memic explains that their tiny robotics allow surgeons to be less invasive and safely perform gynecological surgeries so women can heal faster and have less scarring. Memic is a much-needed innovation in the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar robotic surgery market. You can get in early on Memic and other unique opportunities right now at rcrowd.com slash boss. If you're interested in investing, you got to sign up now. It's rcrowd.com slash boss. O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash boss to sign up for your free account now. We're back. Leaf and Kathleen, it's a pleasure to have you guys on. It's great to be here, Sam. Thanks. Hello. Yeah, great to be here with you. Great, great. And uh, Leaf, you've been on before. This is good to have you back on. Popular episode back in the day. We'll leave links to that in the show note. But so you guys had a new book out and extremely timely, uh, to say the least. But what I wanted to ask was, was this book written before COVID or is it just kind of <laughs> coincidental that yeah. it was published right as everyone's starting to think about this stuff? It's completely coincidental. In fact, we wrote the book more than a year ago. So before co the you know before the whole pandemic scenario play even had begun to play out, and then when it was becoming apparent that you know what early on in this year, say about March, I guess, that wow, this is a new world. This is this isn't going away. What does this mean? And everyone was trying to address that question. Our publisher from Wiley got in touch and and said you guys, what should we do? Should we, you know, still publish the book? Do you think it still makes sense? Is it still relevant? And I said, I think, in fact, the timing is even better. I think it's going to be more relevant than, than even before. And that the timing just coincidentally turns out to be really important because what's going on in the world, I think the big overriding point that all of this is making for me, and I know I'm not alone and everyone else can see it too. People, we need options, you know, you need backup plans, you need exits and accesses and all of that. And that requires thinking beyond borders, beyond your home borders. And fundamentally, that's what the book is about, thinking beyond your home borders and diversifying into real assets. Love it. Definitely a central narrative of this podcast as well. And the book, very practical, only 200 pages, easy to read, easy to get through. So I know our, our listeners will appreciate it. I loved reading it. And this is something that we're talking about week in, week out right now with our, our group and our listeners. Uh, we just released an episode actually on the, the topic as well, because um, I have a couple foreign properties and and constantly looking to expand that for, for reasons that you just mentioned, Kathleen. And and uh, Johnny, the co-host, is also looking at doing the same thing. And I, I believe that while this is, is appealing to so many people, just the concept of actually pulling it off in practicality seems a little far out there, a little far out of reach that people have been living in you know, a home country for, for so long to step out of their boundaries and purchase uh, a property abroad. While it might sound alluring, it's, I think it, people believe that it's a much more difficult uh, proposition to pull off, which is why I thought it would make a lot of sense to have you guys on. And we'll talk about um, what you guys have outlined in the book, which is eight easy steps on buying real estate overseas. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on and dive into it. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. This is, it couldn't be frankly, a more relevant topic. 
Absolutely. Well, let's, let's dive into those eight points. And then after, at the end, I know you guys have some, some, you know, reading through the book, you have uh, some really interesting stories of, of your own experience buying properties and owning properties overseas. So love to hear about that. But, you know, let's start off with how to get people started, how to frame buying a property overseas. Uh, and and we'll, we'll just try to lay it out in practical terms based on your experience and, and what you guys have been so thoughtful and putting in the book. Uh, so maybe we just start at the at the first one. Where do where do people get started? Right, and it, this, you know, for me, it, it's I've been doing this a long time, and I, I'd like to say, you know, I've only bought one investment property in the U.S. I finally remembered I actually did buy a second property in the U.S., but that was a, a country home outside of Chicago um, mm -hmm. before I moved overseas. But the for real estate investors, you know, in the U.S., you think of long-term rentals a la Carlton Sheets, which kind of ages me um, since he's no longer the main guru, I think, on night, <laughs> nightly uh, ads. But um, overseas, what we focus on most of the time is uh, short-term rentals and uh, now in the last 10 years, agricultural opportunities. Um, Pre-construction is also an option. And long-term rentals can make sense in some markets, but I generally don't recommend it unless you're living there because the tenant laws are so, um, so much stronger and you need to understand them before you just let anybody move in long-term. Mm -hmm. And so what, what of those are going to fit into your portfolio? What, what are you looking for? Short-term rentals, you know, kind of rise to the top much of the time because uh, they tend to get higher net yields if you're buying in the right markets. And so then it's, what are those right markets? And well, and just not to cut you off, but right, because a short-term rental is, you, is a typical first purchase and, and a good purchase for anyone in, an, in a foreign market. So I like it, a short-term rental for so many reasons. And one of the main ones is that it, it brings together the two big opportunities on the table here. The one, of course, is to make money, cash flow, et cetera, and, and hopefully appreciation over time. But the other big opportunity is diversification of your lifestyle and the option or the opportunity to begin spending time in another part of the world and getting to know a new culture, a new country, a new people, et cetera. So that's, I think, the place to start. And we put that out as step number one, which is do your research along the, the lines that LEAF is framing. You know, what kind of an investment are you going to make? Start there. What, what will add and complement and fit into your portfolio? But then also think about where do you just want to spend time? Do you have a favorite place for vacation? Are you dreaming that eventually you'd like to live part or full time in another part of the world? focus your attention there. The first step is to choose your market. And that choice should be based not only on where you see the best uh, opportunities for return on investment, but also where you want to be, where you're going to look forward to every opportunity to return. Because we like to say, you know, a, a short-term rental in the Dominican Republic isn't, it, it just becomes a burden and you resent it every time you have to go visit in and check in with your rental manager. If you, once you finally go to the DR, find out you don't like the Caribbean, you just can't stand <laughs> sand. So go and make that under, have that as a framework before you choose where you start looking. Right, and, and from my perspective, don't go chasing the high yields that you can find you know, in this international real estate genre. Mm -hmm. um, for that reason, years ago, you could buy pre-construction in Mongolia and the rental 
uh, yields were tremendous, you know, 14, 15% um, because of the, uh, of the commodity boom there. Um, but are you really going to make it to Mongolia? You could buy remotely and the, the salespeople and, and the rental managers in place would take care of everything. Um, but are you really ever going to go to Mongolia to check on your property? Now, I, I want to go to Mongolia, but not to check on property. So <laughs> you, 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 get, you got to balance those things. Also balance the, 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 you know, the cost of visiting um, as well. So, you know, if, if against your overall investment. So you could buy something, um, you know, cheap in Asia. But if you're just going to buy one property in Cambodia and you want to visit Cambodia, but how much time and cost is it to go visit once a year to check on your property? Right. If you want to do that for the fun of it, plus you're making some money, perfect. If, you're, if it's just pure investment, maybe something closer to home makes more sense. Exactly. So it's balancing the profit and the fun agendas, as we like to put mm -hmm. it. And we suggest that you think about maybe at least two, but maybe three destinations that fit in with your portfolio and that are intriguing, interesting places to you to spend time. And then that's, this is the fun part, the research, the scouting right now, it, you know, it's not impossible to do much of it, unfortunately, but this phase where the world's going through will pass. And sometime, I hope sometime early in 2021, we'll all be able to get back out there moving around again. And that again, that's the fun part. So don't skip over that. Let yourself enjoy it. And remember both sides of the agenda, the personal and the investment. And then the second important starting point is budget, because you're going to be thinking about what you're going to buy and where you're going to buy it. But then, of course, it all comes down to how much do you have or how much do you want to, to be investing? Right. And the, the key thing when it comes to budget is um, understanding the buying costs. And so there are um, purchase taxes, transfer taxes, stamp duty in the English speaking world. Um, when you buy property that ranges from 1% to as high as 10%, uh, depending on the country. And so you if you've got a hundred thousand dollar budget, you're not going to buy a hundred thousand dollar property. You're going to buy, you know, a ninety or ninety-five thousand dollar property, depending on those um, those buy-in costs. Mm -hmm. And then also understand what the the exit costs are going to be. You've got real estate agent fees. In some markets, you're going to pay. You're going to split the commissions up front when you buy. Um, but then when you're exiting, are you know, are the agent fees three percent, five percent, ten percent? That will help you understand kind of how long you're going to need to hold if you want the appreciation to cover your exit costs um, and uh, just give you an overall better idea of, of what budget you should be looking at. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I just got nailed with the 10% stamp uh, or, or I guess they call it transfer tax in Spain. That was my, uh, my journey mm -hmm. into that wonderful world. Right. <laughs> but, exactly. And, 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 Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was just going to say, and it could be it could be fine, but you need to know that going in. Otherwise, then right, you're kind of taken by surprise and might get a little upset. Yeah, and it's it's totally an easy thing to forget. You know, you get lost in looking at places online. You start fantasizing and romanticizing about these beautiful places uh, at a certain price, and then it's easy just to forget. Oh, I'm going to have to pay the ten percent additional. Uh, that's just a sunk sunk cost into the property. Right. So, I guess one other thing that yeah, it's probably worth touching on uh, on the second point when we're talking about budget is the ability to use leverage. Um, that was another experience that I had over in Asia actually was that when I was buying a property over there, I was expecting as a young and uh, uh, I guess ignorant uh, real estate investor that I would be able to get a loan from a bank back in the USA for a property in Thailand. I found that almost, almost impossible at that stage right. of my life. Um, 
but you know, how do you see this in, in everything you guys have looked abroad? How easy is it to find local banks in that market that will lend to you or, or maybe even alternative financing sources for people that you know, might want a nicer property, but don't have as much cash to be able to, to cover the entire load? Right. And so, right, you're not going to find a bank in the U.S. to lend to you on a property outside of the U.S. with a few exceptions of banks in Texas, California, and Arizona uh, at different times for Mexico. Um, and the reason, of course, is that they, how are they going to foreclose on a property in Thailand? Um, they just don't have the, a U.S. bank. They just don't have the ability. Then the local banks in the country, most countries, you're not going to be able to get financing as a non-resident foreigner because they have no idea who you are how to verify your income, those kinds of things. Um, the markets where you can get financing um, as a non-resident foreigner still right now um, include, and it's not easy, and you, the, the terms are gonna be less than what you would expect in the US, um, but Panama, Portugal, Spain um, has some opportunity. France, there's one bank that's lending there, and I forget their, their name off the top of my head. Um, New Zealand, historically, foreigners have been able to get uh, financing. Ireland, uh, historically, and the UK as well. Panama, did you name Panama? I, I think I started yeah. with Panama. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then Belize, like places like Belize and Nicaragua, but the problem with getting a local bank loan in Belize is you're going to be paying 12% interest. So, mm. you know, you might as well put it on your credit card at that point. <laughs> and right. Uh, and get the, get and get the miles yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so then the... Um, and then the terms, it's going to be maximum 80% loan to value, but probably 60 to 70% loan to value. Mm. And the real kicker, the real expense on the investor side, if it's for lifestyle, it's, it's you know, just a choice you have to make, is most countries, most banks will require you to have a local life insurance policy that names them as the beneficiary. So if you die, they get paid off. They don't have to go chase you or the heirs or foreclose or anything. Um, and so from an investment perspective, obviously, the older you are, the more expensive that life insurance is going to be. And the shorter the loan might be as well, since most banks overseas are only going to lend to you to a maximum age of 70 or 75. Very, very interesting. I was actually surprised when, when I was setting up the bank in Spain uh, for, to actually transact on the purchase that they were pretty open about offering me a loan. I mean, I, I didn't go through the due diligence uh, to take it, but I was surprised that that was even an option because I had no history in Spain. I was just getting over there. didn't even have a, uh, any type of long stay visa. So of those countries that, that you name, there are some great, great options in there. I'm, I mean, some, some, I'm sure some of the countries that people are thinking about are covered in there. Um, so not to say that you can't get financing from a local bank overseas, but it's just just more challenging. I guess that's that's the point for listeners to kind of think exactly. About. And, and you and they'll ask you to prove your income. And so we we have a, a sad story, if you will, of one of our our readers who was buying in Portugal, um, re retired. So all of her income is passive through dividends and rental income, and um, the Portuguese bank pre-approved her. So she signed her purchase contract based off of that, but didn't put a contingency for, for mortgage in the purchase agreement. And then when it came time to get all the documentation um, requirements, the bank wanted a certified letter from the IRS that her income was what it was, which of course she's not really gonna get. Um, the, next, the next option was from a, a lawyer or accountant. And even the person who does her taxes wouldn't do it because they didn't want the, the liability. 
Um, it's hard to get professionals to sign off on things these, these days in the U.S. because they're just paranoid about liability. Mm -hmm. So long story short, she lost her deposit because she couldn't get the financing because she couldn't get the documentation together. Ooh, that's, that stings. So, that's, that's, that's horrible. Yeah, so the moral of the story is even if you're pre-approved, make sure you have a contingency in the purchase contract, which may be you know, most foreign sellers don't even know what that is. So it, it may confuse them, may make them not want to sign with you, but you need to protect yourself. Yeah. And, and there's definitely another point in there that if you're retired or you're an entrepreneur and you make your money kind of chunks or you're living off mostly investment uh, returns, it can be, it can be, it can be really challenging. Even if you're worth five or 10 million in net assets, it can be right. tough to get uh, to get financing, even in your home country, let alone abroad. So it's one thing I think people that have done well, uh, but don't have a kind of quote unquote paycheck uh, exactly. over anticipate their ability to be able to get financing and find out that it's, it's not always that easy if you're not kind of the mainstream. Yeah. That's it. So, if you don't fit in the conventional box of, yeah. of how a lender is going to evaluate your situation. Definitely. So we've, we've covered getting the research done and figuring out your budget. Then it goes into, uh, assume you're, you're going into more of the operational stage. What do you guys have up next? Well, the next step is to, we refer to it as building an in-country network. So you, you need, for example, to start an attorney in a country where you're looking to buy real estate to make that kind of an investment. Your attorney is going to be your ally. You need someone who speaks real English and we make the point because it's one thing to find someone who, yes, they speak English, but it's another thing to, you want to put it to the test. You want to have serious conversations in a very conversational way, speaking as one American speaks to another American. And what you'll find is that sometimes an attorney in Panama or France or, you know, Cambodia speaks English, but once you really get going and you're speaking quickly and you're using a lot of vernacular and slang, they're lost. And so you want to make sure that this attorney not only speaks English, but understands nuance because you're relying on this person to make sure you understand all the potential pitfalls and peculiarities of that market. And and we'll ask the questions and raise the points that you don't know enough to ask or the point, you, you just don't know those points, that's why you have the attorney. And you wanna make sure that he's asking those questions and then translating the answers to you in a way that will make sure you're clear on what's really going on. Not to overstate right. it, but we've seen so many situations become so muddied and and the, and go wrong because of just lost in translation errors with the attorney going back and forth mm -hmm. between the buyer and the seller. Yeah, it's it's a cultural kind of thing. Um, understanding, you know, you and I can have a conversation even though we've never met in person and talk about things. And I've been out of the states for 22 years, and so I'm out of the popular culture but we still would understand each other's meaning when we're talking about real estate, for example. Mm -hmm. An attorney who hasn't dealt with expats or who hasn't, if they've learned their English in the US, that's better. Um, but otherwise they're just understanding the words and they can translate that, but they're not understanding the, the underlying meaning. And I found over the years, I have to rein in my sarcasm when talking to these attorneys <laughs> right. um, because it can get me in trouble because they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll go do that. Because they take it literally. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Huh. Until you need an attorney, that's number one. And then depending on the market, you may need other other support. So, well, right. You, you need a real estate agent as well. And again, unless you speak the local language, you're going to want someone who speaks English. And the pitfall there in the Americas, especially Central America, is there are a lot of American and Canadian people who have moved and retired to, you know, all the way from Mexico down to Colombia and farther um, that have become real estate agents, may, may or may not have been one back in the States. And um, they, they're trusted quickly by gringos going down there because they speak English. But that may not be the best person to be dealing with to get the best price. So um, you, you need to be, be wary of that. Just because they speak English doesn't mean you can trust them. That's um, something that people have learned the hard way. And um, you, you want someone who knows the local real estate market. A lot of these gringos have moved down there and you know didn't know real estate beforehand and decided to sell real estate because it's easy because it's not required to be licensed in most countries um, to sell real estate. Mm -hmm. And uh, but they don't know anything about the local market, the pricing, things like that. So the you process the process. Yeah. So, now, now with an attorney, so so we've covered attorney and real estate uh, agent. With the attorney, would you? I guess there's not necessarily a manuscript for this, but would you tend to work with uh, a someone that's local that speaks good English, or potentially an expat or a gringo that has moved down there and has started a practice down there? Well, in most cases, an expat wouldn't be able to practice law in the country. Mm -hmm. You would, you do need, well, you can just show up and become a real estate agent. In most cases, you are going to need to be licensed to practice as an attorney. And that's not going to be possible for a, a non-national. That makes uh, sense. So, so I, where I thought you were going with the question, which I thought was really actually made a great point was, mm -hmm. do you want to work with an attorney in the country who speaks good English and is experienced working with foreign buyers, or do you want to consult an attorney back home? And the answer to that question is never consult the attorney back home. Well, <laughs> you can, but take it with a grain of salt. Because they just won't understand and they'll be nervous mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll affect that liability. Thing. Yeah. And so they'll, they'll want to talk you out of it. They'll want to want you to stick to safer, more conventional well, within us border and, investments. And we've had readers who have come to our conferences, found a property that they're interested in investing in, go home and, and talk to their advisors back home, which could be their CPA, their attorney, their financial advisor. Mm -hmm. And more than once, um, and probably more than 100 times over the years, I've had them, people write back after a conference like that to say, well, I spoke with my attorney, or I spoke with my accountant, or I spoke with my financial advisor, and they tell me it's illegal for Americans to own property overseas. <laughs> Like, okay, so my first advice then is find a new U.S. <laughs> consultant. Um, but yeah. in the, on the countryside, you, you, the, we're not used to using attorneys to buy real estate in the U.S. The, you know, the real estate agent handles the contract, and um, unless you're doing commercial property, you probably would never end up using an attorney because everything runs through a title company because more than likely you're getting a loan, and the bank wants to run everything, make sure the title's okay. Mm -hmm. The attorney in the other country or in a place like France is the notaire who is just a higher level attorney. They effectively are the title company. They're the one checking title to make sure it's clean. They're checking your contract to make sure that, you know, there's nothing squirrely in there. Um, and so again, the, the, you'll need them to speak English to translate the documents for you. Um, but also find someone who's used to working with expats 
um, because then they know they know how to deal with uh, deal with you and should make the process uh, smoother. Even though it still may not go totally smooth, you're going to have to you know stay on top of them to make sure the process moves forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got we've got attorneys and we got a real estate agent covered. I would assume if we're doing short term rentals, we're going to need some type of property manager or, or exactly. uh, rental yeah. manager. Yeah. Do you guys? Is it fair to say that almost all the the main markets that you guys are looking at, and that you know a lot of our listeners will be looking at, have established property management and rental management companies at this point? Because I know kind of a decade ago it was less of a thing, but I haven't really looked into it since as much. Um, yeah, you can find them in, in pretty much all the markets that we talk about easily. We find them for our readers and talk about them, and the. Typically, what I've found every market I go into, especially if it's a, if, when it's a new market that is just attracting expats. So one example I give is Argentina in 2002 when I went down there and, and bought some properties after their financial crisis. The real estate agent I found was great. In fact, we're still friends. They still come to our conferences. Um, if I ever go to Argentina, we'll have a barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he realized to sell to the foreign market that was starting to come down, it would it would be easier if he had rent in-house rental management as well. Um, and in fact, at the time there was a rental management company that only did rental management that I found, but he started up the one in-house and we went, we went with him and that, and that worked out um, pretty well. So the, your real estate agent, if they're used to dealing with foreigners might have in-house uh, services, other markets that are much more established like, you know, Mexico markets and European markets, for example, will have larger uh, rental management companies that can take on properties. Right, in some kind of emerging or developing markets, it might be unfortunately a, a situation where you take what you can find. You know, you might not have many options for rental or property management. In a place like France, uh, in Paris, for example, it's a, it's a very sophisticated competitive industry. And when, when you have that luxury, then we recommend that you interview two or three different uh, potential agents because the, as, as I'm sure you, you know, all your listeners who bought a, a rental property understand, the rental manager is the key to success in, yeah. in the experience. Yeah, for sure. There was an experience I had uh, going back s- probably seven years now in Greece. I was on a small island in Greece. It was during the Greek uh, debt debacle and th- I was looking for property there and I was really close to purchasing a place. And I'm like, whoa, wait, I got to think about who's going to manage this. And mm-hmm. I looked around the entire island and there wasn't any type of <laughs> property manager, rental management company. I'm like, well, who's going who's gonna to clean this place and right, change the beds? Right. Yeah. So I guess, it, I guess the, the moral of that story is if you're in a smaller, well, make sure you, you look and find a property manager or rental manager before you make Before an offer or, or close. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. All right. So that, that takes us into, you know, we got the network covered. We've got the research covered. We've selected the market. Where do we go from here? So then the next step would be to actually choose the property that you want to buy. Right. And so we recommend for, if again, if you're going on the short-term rental side of things, you, you just said it, find the rental manager first and then ask the rental manager what, what's the best neighborhood, what's the best type of property. And when we first were buying in France, in Paris, we asked the rental manager that we were introduced to, so what, 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 what can you keep occupied the best? What's going to give us the best overall yield? And the response kind of surprised us. 
it was a two bedroom apartment and she told us three different um, neighborhoods in, in Paris. Um, and digging deeper, the reason was because pretty much everybody who invests in Paris and has their pied-à-terre and rents it out part of the year and lives there part of the year, they buy studios in one bedrooms because they're just cheaper, right? You're paying by the square meter. And so you know, a you know, $500,000 studio is still a big chunk of change. You can spend a million dollars or more on a, on a two-bedroom. Two but when it comes to rental, if someone needs a two-bedroom, like a family traveling, they need a two-bedroom. They don't want to rent two one-bedrooms. Uh, and so uh, that's was the advice that we were given. Exactly. So the, the manager, rental manager we were kind of interviewing uh, identified a niche in the market that we probably wouldn't have thought of on our own. So mm -hmm. as Letha's saying, the rental manager is a really, the potential rental manager uh, is a is a really good source of guidance for what to look to buy depending on the market. Yeah, and in, in Medellin, Colombia, another specific example that I can remember, we were telling readers to buy an El Poblado and, and talk to the rental manager that we were recommending because basically he had a, a circle drawn on a map and anything inside that circle he could rent out at the time, you know, very easily. Mm -hmm. One reader went down there bought a property, got a great deal, but it was outside that circle. And her first year's rental yield was like three and a half percent instead of 12%. And she was, she was mad um, that she was getting such a, a low yield. And I said, well, wh what did you buy? Where is it? And she said, oh, I bought this beautiful thing way up on top of the hill and it overlooks this and that. Right. That's perfect for you. This goes back to investment versus lifestyle, but it's not where the people who come to rent short-term in Medellin want to be because you're too far to, away from anything to yep. walk. So yep. exactly where she's talking about and spot on what you just said. <laughs> and this and is so, supposed to be the fun part too, right? I mean, to, to identify yeah. the purchase, you're going there, you're spending time on the ground. Hopefully you're getting to learn a little bit about the market and culture and, uh, and you know, what's your favorite way of looking for a property? Is it using a broker or do you just like scouting stuff yourselves? Well, so for, for us, what we'll, what we'll typically do in a market that's new to us is go on our own and wander around for a couple of days just walking the, the towns, the city, whatever it is. Um, and going back to Medellin, so we first went there in 2009, I think, and we, were, we walked. We walked up Poblado, Loretas, um, other, other neighborhoods. We like to walk. It's our favorite thing to do. And we like real estate. So walking around, looking at houses and properties and looking for for sale signs and comparing, it's, it's, we'd do it all day long, every day of the year, if we could, it's, yeah. it's just what we like to do. And it turns out, I think also just, you know, fortunately for us to be maybe the best way to get to know a market, there's just no substitute. I mean, to use the cliche for boots on the ground and, mm -hmm. and literally, you know, a lot investing the shoe leather is, uh, is invaluable. So that walking around gave us an idea of the neighborhoods and that, that, pulled us back to El Poblado, which is the Beverly Hills, if you will, of Medellin. It's also kind of where pretty much all of the uh, tourists and businessmen tourists or the partying tourists um, want to be. Mm -hmm. And then, so that was the, that was our first trip and then looking for our, the infrastructure, the, the contacts. And then on the next trip, I made arrangements to see properties with uh, two different agents. One was a gringo agent that spoke English or an agency, he had multiple agents. Um, and one was with a local agent who only spoke Spanish, which I speak well enough Spanish that that, that makes sense. And 
it was interesting. So the gringo agent was showing us properties that expats would be interested in, both location and style. The local agent was showing us what she would show a local, which was you know mostly basically two bedroom apartments, well priced, um, but not nothing other otherly interesting uh, to them. And they may have worked out for uh, rentals, especially long term rentals to locals. But um, we ended up buying uh, a property that was uh, in need of a full gut renovation. The lady who owned it passed away. She lived in it since it was built. It was 40 years old. And so it was a great deal. And a, the best thing to buy if you're going to renovate is something that needs to be totally gutted because otherwise you're dealing with uh, you know, p- people wanting money for what they did to it and you're just going to tear it out. So that, that that's really how we went into that market. And so the, you know, get, being in the market, as I like to say, you need to see what, th- what things are priced and get a feel for it. Um, a colleague of ours, um, Lee Harrison, who writes for us and, and speaks at our conferences, he's a spreadsheet guy. And for his purchases in Medellin, he visited, I don't know, more than 80 properties, put them all into a spreadsheet, and then was analyzing the numbers and, and whatnot. We um, went around for two days with the two different agents and bought a property or made an offer before we before we left and we saw maybe 16 properties eight with each yeah. eight with and each so to answer your question directly we like to start out on our own and get a feel for the place and have an idea in our minds of what we think would work and what we think we would enjoy most and and then and we do like to do that on our own without any real estate agent talking in our ear and then though we do enlist help from brokers whereas our friend lee who leaf was mentioning he's a do it himself guy he, he as leaf said he'll spend weeks looking at dozens and dozens of properties and creating what amounts to his own mls his right. own yeah. comps Right. And but that, which, that's which is great is, for us when he writes an article yeah, exactly. about it. We definitely try to take advantage of that when he does it for in a market we're interested in. But I don't have the patience for that. I oh. I'm definitely more okay. This is a place we want to invest. Let's meet with a couple of brokers, see what they have to show us, and make a decision, and then move on. Yeah, you know, wh- where's the balance for you guys? And most of these properties are places you guys want to spend some time. I, I presume. You know, where's the balance in trying to find total? total return on investment dollars, but also a place that you really are excited about going to visit or a neighborhood even more specifically? Yeah, that's a painful question in our family. So the answer is <laughs> Kathy shouldn't be involved and then it's very well balanced. <laughs> so the, the, the great deal we got on this renovation property in uh, Medellin was a great deal. Um, by the time it was done being renovated, it was an okay deal and I could have we could have flipped it and made money. Uh, We've owned it now for going on 10 years. It was supposed to be a rental. We've rented it for two months only um, and then didn't, haven't since because the people who rented it for two months scratched my lovely wood countertops because they like to cook. And that was the end of it because the, the apartment was renovated to our standard for our comfort. And I wasn't gonna take the risk of somebody damaging anything. And so it just became a, a personal property instead of an investment. We call <laughs> right. it the spousal effect. Right. If the, if the spouse is involved, the investment return suffers. So, <laughs> I'm okay with that. Well, so, when, so when we went to Portugal and bought there, I, 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 she came along, Kathy came along, but <laughs> I, I said, this is, only, this is only for investment. We bought something that we actually did stay in every time we were there. 
um, but it wasn't someplace Kathy would have chosen. And that did that one did really well. You know, we we were running five to eight percent net yields, and it more than doubled in uh, four years. So we ended Beautiful. up selling it. Beautiful. Well, after you guys are coming up on on your kind of fifth point, which is after we've identified a place to purchase, which is the fun part. Now we get into a part that's probably fun for some people and less fun for other people, but it's the negotiation of the purchase price. Do you right. guys have any general strategies or tips on, on how you go about this and if it varies kind of market to market? It, it, it does also depends, as you know, you know if, if a property is priced right to sell in a market, it's priced right to sell. And so the, the main thing is getting the, you know, finding something that's priced right and not priced not gringo priced, you know, in Latin America, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, right, in some markets, maybe you're going to offer 10, 15, 20% under the asking price. In other markets, it, you know, you just take the sales price because uh, you don't want to lose the property because it's, it's a hot market. So it's not terribly different than how you would do most things in the U.S., uh, again, just de- depending on the market. I don't think we've ever, like, in, you know, in Portugal, we paid this price. In Colombia, we paid... Um, probably 5% under what they were asking. And a lot of stuff that we bought is pre-construction. So, you know, that's basically, you know, the developer, you can negotiate maybe if you're buying pre-construction, some more amenities, some more perks from the developer, but you're not going to get much room on the price in most cases. Mm-hmm. And this is the point where it's a good idea to take guidance uh, from your attorney. Your attorney should know the market. You're a real estate agent too, but I, I would also check with your attorney and ask, okay, you know, what's no, what's normal in this market? What's what's not offensive? Because there are some markets where if you your offer is too low, the seller will be insulted and walk away and just won't won't respond, and you're you're no longer a potential buyer. Just I, yeah, I, I've had that where I've said, okay, offer X, and the real estate goes back to the seller's real estate agent or whatever, and offers X, and you you never hear from them. And what, I, what I've learned though, when we were buying our development property in Panama and made a lot of different offers on different properties, um, in the Spanish culture, that, that's their negotiating tactic. And a lot of the people we were looking to buy property from in Panama, they were expecting us, when they didn't respond, they were just expecting us to come back with a better offer. Mm-hmm. And um, it took us a while to figure that out. <laughs> and so These people don't like money. <laughs> we just walked away. Okay. Didn't hear from you. I moved on to the next property. Yeah. Um, and then once we figured that out, sometimes we went back with a, with a better offer, but then you find in some cases, you know, I found myself going back uh, with a better offer and the, the seller says, Oh no, now the price is actually right. X plus. Right. Well, that's what mm. happened in Ireland with Paul Drew House. Right. The seller of oh, a yeah, yeah. property that Leaf... 20 years ago in Ireland. That was the original reason Leaf was in Ireland looking to buy a property to develop uh, for corporate retreats. It was your idea when we met. We right. met in Ireland on a tour of Ireland. And oh, P.S. I love you. How cute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Leaf found a property he wanted to buy. And then he and I were dating. And so I was watching uh, from the sidelines as, as he was trying to negotiate with this seller who was a very intriguing kind of mysterious doctor from uh, Singapore. Mm-hmm. And 
the, the, the guy's tactic, and I concluded in the end that the guy didn't want to sell his house. And, and, he, was, and, and, he, and he didn't. No. And he didn't. But his tactic was every time we went back to talk to him, the price was higher. I mean, four or five different times by not small amounts. And so yeah. finally, we've just I, got I stopped, frustrated. I stopped talking to him because eventually it was going to cost me a billion dollars for this house. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> now, it's funny. You mentioned you guys bought that property in, in Colombia that someone had lived in it for 40 years. And I think, too, like sometimes with foreign buyers, sellers are a little apprehensive about selling, you know, if they know all the neighbors and they've, they're friends with everyone in the, the community or in the building, sometimes apprehensive to sell to a foreigner if they're not sure how those people are going to you know, assimilate with that community. And right. in, in, uh, in Barcelona, where I just got a place I had to, the, the lady was very nervous about selling to a foreigner, you know, Catalonian culture. And mm-hmm. uh, so I wrote a, a kind of a two page letter in Spanish that just said, I, you know, I loved all the classical elements of the place and I'm a good person. <laughs> and eventually, eventually that was got a great down, idea. Yeah. So I think, I think there's that element too. And that's, again, I think it's part of a, all part of the negotiation. So, uh, right. So after you get the price down, oh, last question on that. Do you guys typically put your your bids in through, uh, you know, through the agent or the attorney, or do you do you oftentimes just do it directly to the seller, kind of face to face chat? Uh, it depends on the type of property. I definitely recommend if you're buying land, um, and especially in Latin America, that you try and negotiate directly with the seller because of what we call net pricing, and you know so. You know, a, a farmer in Ecuador farming watermelon on the beach um, may tell his cousin, I want to sell my property for $50,000. And the cousin says, okay, great. The cousin has a car so he can go into the nearest town and talk to a real estate agent and say, hey, my cousin has this property for sale at the beach for $70,000. And then the real estate agent um, knows a gringo agent in the big city and says, hey, I know this property on, on the beach that they'll sell for $100,000. And then the gringo real estate agent puts it on the internet for $150,000. So, um, and it, I exaggerate the numbers a bit, but we've seen it in various ways. Literally and, what you just laid out, that's a real true story. <laughs> um, and so, and not just Latin America. I had a guy in France once come to me to say, hey, a buddy of mine wants to sell a chateau for 1.5, but I think we can get 1.9. Will you, will you list it to your readers? And I'm like, no. Um, so... <laughs> But so for land, definitely that, that, that happens more often for, if you're in a city buying, um, working with the agents and, and the real, and the attorneys uh, is generally fine. If you're working with the developer, you're going to negotiate directly with the, with the developer. Even if you're using a real estate agent, uh, take the agent out of the conversation and, and deal directly with the developer's, uh, representative. Got it. Great. So we've negotiated the price. We've agreed now the next steps. Uh, I think we probably combine these for, for the sake of the audience, but close the deal and take the title. The less fun stuff, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> necessary paperwork nonetheless. Well, in a, in, a, in a good time to have an attorney, I've only attended one, two, I'm trying to count in my head. I should, I should do this and write it down somewhere. Out of the 50 plus properties I've bought around the world, I have attended maybe less than 10 um, of the closings. Mm-hmm. So you can, do, you can do a power of attorney and have the attorney deal with everything. And 
uh, and the closing. The fun one was in Argentina, which we can do at another time um, for your audience. But it, it was it, because it was all cash. It's a story that'll take about 10 or 15 minutes, but so we can record that some other time. Um, <laughs> and so, right. So closing the deal, you're going to you're going to sign a, a promise to buy agreement um, in the civil law world that then when you then you finally do do the closing you're 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 actually signing the sales agreement which is mm -hmm. effectively the escritura to the title and then the then the title goes and, and gets registered and depending on the country that could take a day or or it could take weeks um mm -hmm. so you're right those those two items kind of roll together and should be managed by uh, by your attorney like a title agency would in the u.s and the big question on taking title is if you take it in your own name yeah, or right, right. in a company name. How to hold title, depending on how you want to deal with um, your heirs for estate planning purposes, you know, holding owning properties in six different countries in your own name. Do you really want your kids to go through uh, probate in six different countries and possibly six different languages? So, Jeez. Scavenger hunt. <laughs> well, so yeah, so using a, a holding company uh, a, a uh, for non-U.S. property, I generally recommend a, a non-U.S. LLC um, from a place like Belize or Nevis, and then that LLC can typically own property in uh, in most countries. The hiccup is Europe, which you know they don't like the Caribbean countries because of the the tax haven status. Um, mm. So you have to you have to be careful with that um, on the Europe side. But it, again, it's a balancing act between um, potential taxes asset protection and uh estate planning oh i know that uh, we have a patreon group i know there's there's two questions in there particularly uh that people wanted to get across to you but before we before we close out on those two questions number eight we now own the property we took the title we have managed the asset do you guys have any important notes or anything for the listeners uh regarding that because that can be <laughs> there can be a lot to unpack there Right. So, well, the main thing you, know, you, you need your bills paid. So your rental or property manager can do that for you. Or if you're uh, able to and get a local bank account, um, direct debit is your friend. Um, I pay a lot. That's I, a great I, tip. I, I yeah. pay a lot of my electric bills around the world by, uh, by direct debit mm -hmm. and, or now just directly on, uh, you know, I go in and actually have to physically do it every month in Panama because they don't have direct debit for it um, to pay my electric bill. So, you want you want to be set up so that you're someone's not physically taking cash to pay the electric bill, which you still have to do in some countries. Yeah, is the direct debit always run through a local bank there? Or can you can you set that up from your maybe U.S. banks or somewhere else? No, it, it's a local bank. If you've got a rental manager and you're you're actively renting the place, um, they can pay the the electric bills uh, as well. In the case of Portugal, with the the rental manager paid one of the bills that couldn't be done direct debit to our Portuguese bank account. Panama always seems a little bit behind on stuff like this. I don't know why. We used to use a payment processor in Panama and I had to go in every time we had a, a sale on our e-com shop and manually approve every single transaction. <laughs> like, can we just automatically approve these transactions? Like, oh no, we don't have the capability yet. Like, okay. <laughs> Not scalable. So... <laughs> So a couple quick questions in closing. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. Super helpful, guys. Um, appreciate it. So some of the listeners want to know, including myself, just about your own personal real estate portfolio. You know, through the book, you talk about some really cool destinations, Argentina, Colombia, Ireland. I mean, those are three of my favorites right there. Where else have you guys bought in real estate? And is there any 
hot spots uh, ahead of you that you that you're really looking to get into? Well, the list of countries of where we've bought is two dozen. Um, so wow. I, I won't run through all of them, but you know, much of the Americas, North and South, um, several places in Europe. So you know, Ireland, France. Croatia, Spain, Spain and, Por and Portugal, Portugal. And, and the UK. Um, and Asia, it's been more direct investments, um, some of which didn't work out. So, to, you know, developer direct investment in the Philippines that didn't come through. Hard money loan in Australia that was great. And a couple of things in Thailand that were, you know, kind of fall in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, oh, and, well, the one most exotic purchase we've made is the Galapagos Islands in Ecuador. Um, wow. And I, it was cheap. I bought it for cocktail party conversation. Yeah, I sold, I sold it 10 years after we bought it um, for just a little bit less than what I paid for it. So it, it, <laughs> it, ser it served its purpose. Um, got a lot of attention and I can still talk about it because I, I found property in the Galapagos, which is possible. Most people don't think it is, but there's only 3% of the land in the Galapagos that can be owned and you need to have a local Galapagan uh, partner. So that's when a structure came in handy. I set up a Panama company. Um, mm -hmm. They got one share out of a thousand and that allowed me to get title. But I'll say, I'll say quickly that the places where we're looking actively ourselves, I'll make my list, you can say your list. Mm -hmm. uh, we're inter I'm interested in buying again in Portugal. We sold our apartment there last year and I'd like to uh, buy something else there. I'm interested in uh, buying, there's a particular opportunity I like right now in the Dominican Republic and Santo Domingo mm -hmm. that I think is really cool. Uh, Northern Cyprus is a market that I'm really interested in. And then for purely personal reasons, I want to buy something in Ireland. We, we have just such a, a personal connection there. As I said, it's where Leif and I met. It's where our son was born, where we raised the kids. So I would like to have a place there, but that I don't see any investment element to that at all. And yeah, all those are fine on my list. What, the one thing to keep in mind and what I've started to try and consolidate years ago, and one reason I got rid of the Galapagos property, the, the administration, mm -hmm. so because is because it was set up in a Panama corporation, I was paying whatever, $500, $600 a year to maintain that corporation and having to remember to you know make those payments and deal with the registered agent each year. And so eventually I just didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and so you, I'm focused on buying things, mul more having multiple properties in the same country rather than continue to spread myself out too thin. That makes sense. How many properties have you guys owned uh, collectively at a single time? Oh, at a single time? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I, right now, it, it, I, I did the math or tried to do the math in my head the other day. We, I have a spreadsheet so because I forget about some of them sometimes because mm -hmm. some of them I haven't seen still. I never did see the property in the Galapagos. Um, but we have about 30 properties right now, um, ranging from land in... Uh, Canada that we've never seen to, you know, apartments in Paris to our development in, uh, in Panama and some agricultural investments and things we, like that. We're most wow. heavily invested in Panama. So where we own rentals and an office building, which we use as our office for the live and invest overseas business development property and um, some agricultural property uh, riverfront and then some property planted with teak trees. So we've been active in Panama for a, for a long time. 20 years. Yeah. 
So, uh, uh, how many properties would it take? I assume you guys have help in managing this, right? Because otherwise you could just become a full-time property manager of property <laughs> managers. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> so, so, well, a lot of it, I mean, the land doesn't require much. The, the, my, one of my biggest stresses of the year until they started allowing me to pay by credit card was paying the property tax in Canada. Um, when we were living in France, I finally figured out the best way to do it was go to the French post office and they would do a Canadian um, money order, you know, Canadian dollar money order that I could send to Canada. And I did it that way for, for a few years. Um, but then finally, now they've taken credit cards for the last six, seven, eight years. Uh, so that's, that's easy. So land is generally easy, but in a place like Panama, we do have people who check on the land because you don't want squatters to sneak in there and start you know, setting up a house or whatever. And in Paris, we have, we'll, we'll call her an assistant. We pay someone to help us deal with just the administration of our, our with the two apartments we have there now. In Panama, we have our office staff, but we also have someone we would call a personal assistant. And that's our strategy in, in a place where we have multiple investments, rather than trying to find a quote unquote rental or property manager, property by property, or even for a bunch of properties, we try to find someone who, who we form a personal relationship with and who gets to know us, we get to know them, we, uh, and we, can, we feel like we really can trust them. And then they help us to manage whatever we own and also can be helpful in, in expanding our investment portfolio in that, in that location. Right. So in Panama and Paris, if something breaks or needs to be, main, you know, needs maintenance or whatever, we call um, Linda or Marion, and they arrange uh, to deal with it. And so, and they're and they're just on a very low monthly retainer to basically be at our beck and call. Got it. So where well, where I you have? You want. <laughs> I'm going to hear that. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't think either one of them actually minds. They, I mean, yeah. they have other people. We're they, good they, friends with both of them. For, but, I'm teasing. Right, but. We've been working with Brian for well, both of them for more than 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so where you guys have clusters of properties, you'll have team on the ground there. But from a high level administration standpoint, it's still, still you guys doing it or someone sort of the overarching estate manager for all the properties? Uh, it's me. Uh, I'm me you know, my background is finance, accounting, and administration. And, and I don't, trust anybody else yeah. to, keep, to keep up with it. And honestly, again, this is part of why I've been kind of scaling back the, the different countries. Um, it, it's, it's not that much on a, on a week to week basis. It, it, the yeah. main things are making sure the property taxes are paid. And in, you know, in, in the case of Columbia, we have a, a, our local attorney actually gets those bills and pays those for us and sends us the bill. Uh, so there, there are ways to minimize it. Love it. Last question for closing. What are the hottest, the best value markets out there right now without going crazy? Um, but, you know, maybe in the Americas or Europe, what are, what are a couple of the best value markets you think for total return on investment right now? Well, Kathy mentioned Northern Cyprus and we've been looking at Northern Cyprus for years, but finally got a good contact um, through, uh, through one of our friends there who's a real estate agent and kind of knew through research that you could get double digit net yields there. Um, and some of the pre-construction properties that we're seeing, you know, well under hundred thousand dollars, they just um, had some at $50,000 with projected net yields of, you know, 11, 12%. I don't think there's probably big uh, capital appreciation upside there, 
but when you're talking about a $50,000 investment, so your, your risk level is relatively low um, because of the capital amount and a 11%, 12% and rental management comes with it. The developers have the rental management in place and the tourism market, of course, right now is dead like everywhere, but generally speaking, Northern Cyprus has, uh, has good tourism. The other place that we're, we're hoping that in, in getting back into, Kathy mentioned Portugal, our friends there expect probably in March um, for Portugal prices to, that, that's when they'll soften because that's when the, the moratorium on rent and mortgage payments ends. And so right now, there's, there aren't a lot of deals on the ground, um, but by March, they're, they're expecting there to be. And so we'll be looking at that because we want to turn the uh, money back into Portugal from our previous sale. Well, we'll, we'll hope to see you guys over there in the Iberian Peninsula then. <laughs> yeah, if, you're, if you'll be in Barcelona, that's one of our favorite cities. So. Oh, yeah, right. Great. Stop on by. I bought it the exact worst possible day, January 28th, about two days before COVID came rolling through. Oh, <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> that's wow. a long-term thing so it'll be it'll be good uh, well, that's the guys, thing yeah. yeah go ahead go ahead no, just, yeah real estate is a long-term investment so it's the you know buying and flipping overseas is is not as easy or profitable as it is in the states yeah especially when you pay that 10 percent transfer fee you gotta exactly. sit on it for a few years just to get past that so <laughs> but this is a lot of fun awesome information love the book uh you know, listeners, links in the show notes. Kathleen, Leaf, you guys have anything remaining before we, we take off, get onto your no, afternoons? That was a great conversation. Thank you very much. I will mention that if your listeners are interested in this idea, of course, we'd love them to buy the book. It, uh, it's available on Amazon. But uh, if you're not ready to make that investment yet, maybe go to our website and look for our free e-letter on the homepage of the site, you can sign up. And that's a way to start reading about these ideas, zero cost. And when you're tired of reading, just unsubscribe. Perfect. Kathleen Leaf, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Great. Thank thanks, you. Sam. Sam, where do I wire the money? Did they take Western Union? <laughs> What are we? What are we buying? Last episode, you, you were buying a strip club. Now, now you're buying a house. Where? I don't know. Maybe it's a strip club <laughs> overseas in a house. Yeah, it could be. That's that's the perfect. That is that's the perfect segue. We talked about buying a strip club in. Uh, uh, never mind. Let's let's focus on residential real estate. <laughs> episode one fifty five for anyone listening. Uh, okay, I think this is. You know, this was a practical episode on how to get it done, but it's also exciting, right? When you hear about their stories and you think about the steps, like four or five of those eight steps are actually really fun. It's, it's, it's often getting off a plane, walking through one of your favorite towns, uh, you know, meeting with the owners, checking out the landscape, like all that stuff is, in my opinion, is really fun. I just had this experience picking up the place in Barcelona where I literally walked like, a hundred different streets that I was interested in and kind of narrowed it down to five or six that I really, really wanted to find a place in. And I assume that you just did the same thing, Johnny, in Sri Lanka, although it sounds like that deal didn't go through. Yeah. Uh, I actually haven't even been to that, that beach city yet, but I think I've, I've <laughs> seen enough Sri Lanka now where I would know where to buy, but anyway, it's, yeah. it's, I really believe that, most of these deals, most of the benefit of investing overseas is to have these, you know, these adventures and have these, you know, dinner conversations about owning a place in, you know, these other countries and bragging rights. 
I, the, the more we do the, this podcast, the more I realize that out of the 156 different types of investments we've covered, most of them pay about the same, you know, like a 10%, you know, between like a, let's say a five to a 10, 12, 15%, you know, yield um, on average. It, it, there's some, they're just more excited to talk about. There's some that are boring, uh, but just pay really well. And mm-hmm. there's some, they're just headaches. And I honestly, I, I think this, you know, investing overseas falls in the fun to talk about, but headache to manage and doesn't actually make that much money category. Yeah, I agree completely. But it's a lifestyle. I think it's more of a lifestyle investment, right? And for any Americans, there's basically two assets that you can own that you don't need to really report. And that is gold and foreign property. So yes, you need to pay tax on your earnings from overseas properties, but you don't actually have to report it. So theoretically, nobody actually knows that you own it, which can be useful for potential lawsuits that you might incur down the way or, or run into potential creditors. So a lot of people are buying properties overseas just as kind of insurance policy against that. Also the lifestyle uh, perks of being able to go visit these properties, being able to take kind of quote unquote business trips to these destinations and definitely the dinner side, uh, fireside chat conversation. Let me ask you, Johnny, what would be, we, we heard on that episode that Leaf and Kathleen own a property in Galapagos. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy, right? Definitely good chat. Where would be a cool place to own for your dinner conversations? What do you think would be really intriguing? Oh, you know what? I thought it was that luxury place in in, in uh, Sri Lanka, uh, mm-hmm. that Dusantani. It looked amazing. There, there was a uh, Nikki Beach Club being built inside of it. So I, th- I think that was that was a big reason why I wanted to invest is just to kind of have those bragging rights to be able to to talk about it, you know, how cool it was. Um, but I also realized now that I'd much rather just, you know, have a similar bragging right and say, yeah, like I, I went and then I booked a, a condo for a month summer and I just paid for it. Or, or yeah, I make 10% of my mortgage servicing debt uh, through, through APH servicing. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that there's a lot of benefits of investing overseas that you mentioned, like first hedging uh, U.S. currency, which even though USD has been so strong and it will you know, most likely pull down any or anyone else if we start messing up, it is still the most stable currency out there. But I would like to have a an overseas property, especially somewhere I want to go every year, and I would like to have a you know cash account that gets filled up. Uh, I had an idea of, you know, of buying a, a property in like Kiev, Ukraine and having, you know, the monthly money just kind of go into a bank account, make sure it doesn't go over 10,000. So I don't have to report it and just going there and just spending that money down whenever, whenever I'm there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know what the, uh, the actual legal yeah. structure that is, but that, that could be fun. That could be that, you know, that hedge of having a place to, to go uh, if all else kind of fails and having some, some money. Uh, to spend and just, you know, just enjoy it. Yeah. I think it's a good plan. I like it. I like the narrative. Uh, there's this, there is this thing though with the, the headache part, right? So let's just say you have a million dollars in Vanguard S&P 500 funds, whatever. You're making like 
it's not a ton of money, but it's so easy. It's so passive. You're, it's, it's beautiful to log in and look at things, especially when things are going up. You don't have to think about it all year. It's just one account that pays you while you sleep and has zero maintenance, you know, zero responsibility. Then you cash out that million dollars and you buy this beautiful condo wherever it is. And immediately that condo starts owning your ass. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Taxes, utilities, insurance, maintenance, responsibility, reporting mm-hmm. in certain cases, right? <clears throat> so the point is, is like you either, you have to invest in it for the right reasons. Yes, you can make probably better than 2% on a lot of, of these if you're renting it. Uh, long-term or short-term, but short-term again is going to be, you know, headaches. Long-term can even be headaches, right? Heard about some of the reasons why on this episode where like you can't easily evict people oftentimes. So these, you know, they're not, they're not as easy as a Vanguard index fund. And uh, I think that's, that's a big point on yours, Johnny, is that the, you got to do it for the right reasons. I've enjoyed the experience. I'm already looking for, for additional properties, but I think I'm doing it more for the adventure side of it. Like I would like to own a property in Siberia, right? In Patagonia, uh, Ireland, places like this. Um, but it's, yeah, you, you, you gotta, you gotta think through it because it's, it's often becomes more stressful than, uh, than it is worth on the lifestyle side. Yeah. I think that the more I think about investing overseas, the more I realize I'm much happier having completely kind of passive things if the US stock market wasn't so kind of overpriced or high priced right now, I would just put all my money in index funds and just not worry mm-hmm. about it. But I am worried that, you know, the US isn't going to be the power player in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And, and you know, there, I need to be diversified in other things. So real estate, I, I do like it. I may or may not end up buying a property either in the US or overseas. Uh, but right now, I don't want that headache at all. So I'm glad we have this advice. Uh, and if any of you end up buying a place overseas or you're cash flowing and you had a good experience, let us know in the boss mm-hmm. lounge because we would, we would like to hear it. Definitely. Let's do a poll. Yeah, let's do yeah. a poll. I still think for you, Johnny, if, you, if these places you love, like Kiev, Sri Lanka, Thailand, if you can pick up a place there for a hundred grand, which you can, uh, I mean, that's not going to, that's not going to be the case in 10 years. In my opinion, it's going to be two X minimum in, in these places with all the things that are happening in the mm-hmm. world and true. the big shift of where people are living. Like, you know, you, you go buy the same place in Hong Kong and that, that, that place is already $800,000, right. For a small yeah. one bedroom. So I, I don't know. I just think it's so, it's so low risk at this point that, and it's a place that you believe that you're going to live there and spend time there for the next couple of decades. I imagine I still think it's, it's something to consider, but I don't want to push it on you, Johnny. You're happy. I don't want to mess that up. Yeah. I, I, what I value more than that 2X return is the freedom of zero responsibilities, mm-hmm. not even having to deal with a property manager, not having to deal with paying you know, property taxes or maintenance fees or water bill or forgetting about something. And people forget that if, I, you, know, if you invest 100K in pretty much anything else, in 10 years, your money's, your money's going to double anyways. Yeah, that's very true. Like <laughs> if, yeah. Merging market funds or 
foreign developed funds or just the S&P 500 is probably going to be probably going to be safe yeah. over the next 10 years, assuming the economy, capitalism sticks around, population keeps growing and technology keeps rolling and making labor increasingly more efficient, which certainly seems to be doing. Um, but I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy it, drop us a five-star review. If you haven't yet, share it with a friend that might be interested in investing overseas. I know a lot of people here in the U.S. are talking about investing in the Caribbean and Mexico now. Uh, so it's, it's hot on everybody's minds. And I don't think it's just for people in the U.S. It's no matter where you're from because you've just got basically locked down into your country where your passport is worthless for the last year. And that's like an eye-opener to a lot of people that maybe I need to start kind of diversifying my options and lifestyle outside of my home country. Yeah. So guys, we listened to episode 46 about flag theory. Uh, also listen to our Simon Black episode about what's second passports because the investment that I would make overseas is in places like Portugal where you can buy yourself into the EU or get a second passport. That to me would be interesting. Definitely. And that's something that you and I haven't t done yet. So I think we're going to have to put that on the iLab bucket list, second passport. Can you do that with Barcelona? You just spent like half a million dollars there. Well, it's not 100% that I'm even going to get this golden visa because I have a few misdemeanors left on my record. <laughs> um, although it should be okay. You never know. But yeah, within five years of getting that golden visa, I can apply for citizenship. But you got to be careful with Spanish citizenship because you can start... Uh, getting taxed on your worldwide assets, oh not gosh. just your worldwide income. Oh my gosh. But in, in my opinion, a, a permanent residency for this regard is almost as good as, as citizenship. It's probably better. Like, it's probably better. Yeah. I mean, you, you, could, you could basically say a citizenship, you can travel then on that passport. Yeah. If you like, if for any reason, the, like okay. right now, you, you can't get a lot of places with an American passport, right? Because mm -hmm. of COVID. So if you had a Spanish passport, you could actually get to more places. Yeah. <clears throat> but so, yeah, I see the, the benefits. Uh, I pulled up the episode. It's 137 with Andrew Henderson. It's called Best Vitas and Citizens by Investment. So take a listen to that next, mm -hmm. guys. Definitely. All right, Johnny. Well, thanks for the commentary. Enjoyed this episode. Thank you, Leaf and Kathleen, for coming on and Derek for setting up. We'll leave a link to the book and also to their website, liveandinvestoverseas.com, if you guys want to see more. All right. Thanks, guys. See you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.